today on Musonomics. Why don't we just start it leaving style where you go, what do they want? What do they want? Oh, I'm on it. I'm on it. Let's record it. We're taking a look at the venerable tradition and current state of the recording studio. I'm Larry Miller from NYU Steinhardt. The high-end studio was once a cornerstone of music making, but shifts in consumption, musical styles, production tools, and real estate values have made high-end recording studios an endangered species. So today, we'll talk with music producers and studio veterans on both coasts to help us trace those shifts. Then we'll talk with John Seabrook, a contributor to The New Yorker and author of the new book, The Song Machine. And we'll learn about how and where our pop music is made and why recording studios have become less integral in that process. But first, let's address that racket that's going on in the background. What we're listening to here is a studio recording session from the 2013 Dave Grohl-backed documentary, Sound City. The song is called Your Wife is Calling, and it features Grohl leading a pack of Sound City veterans. The recording was part of a series of recordings that Grohl helped to organize with musicians that have recorded at Sound City Studios in California's San Fernando Valley. Across four decades, Sound City churned out over 100 platinum and gold hits. Without that studio, we might not have Nirvana's Nevermind or Neil Young's After the Gold Rush or Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, and we might never have even heard of Rick Springfield or Jesse's Girl. After the studio's closing in 2011, Dave Grohl of Nirvana and the Foo Fighters bought several items from the studio, including the studio's heart and soul, the fabled Neve 8028 analog mixing console, a piece of vintage recording equipment with a long history of hit records. If Grohl hadn't purchased it, the Neve would surely have ended up in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Grohl was so moved by the closing of the studio in which he recorded Nevermind with Nirvana that he decided to make a documentary, gathering together some of the most revered names in music to reflect on the time they spent at Sound City and the music they made there. As it traces the rise and fall of Sound City Studios over four decades, the documentary leans hard on rockism, with an abundance of short-term nostalgia and a predictable disdain for digital technology. But the trajectory that the documentary traces is one that reflects a reality for the recording industry. The biggest music studios are slowly but surely disappearing. Sound City closed its doors in 2011. The record plant Sausalito location closed in 2008. New York's Sony Studios closed in 2007. The Hit Factory closed in 2005. And the historic RCA Studio A in Manhattan was sold to real estate developers in 2004. So, what happened? Ever since Thomas Edison first recorded sound on wax cylinders in 1877, we've been trying to perfect the process. The story of the modern recording studio is very much tied to the advent of rock and roll. Although there was certainly popular music before rock and roll, the world's first rock stars, 
Legends like Elvis, Buddy Holly, and the Beatles transformed what we thought was musically and commercially possible. The piles of money raked in by record companies were reinvested to fund new music, and budgets for music making were plentiful. Recording studios took many shapes and sizes, from high-class swank to lowbrow grime. They were strewn about the country, mostly centered around the traditional hubs of music production, New York, L.A., San Francisco, and Nashville. But there were also studios like Muscle Shoals in Alabama, whose location away from those hubs was part of the draw. Though the exact makeup of a recording studio varied, and over time the technology contained within them has evolved, they all provided musicians with things that were absolutely vital to the recording process. A room, expensive equipment, and expert engineering staff to make it all work. The room needed to be large enough to contain the musicians while recording and specifically designed with acoustics and sound isolation. These rooms and the particular timber that they imbued in the recording sessions they housed became a type of signature for each studio. This was where music was made for nearly four decades. But then came the 90s, and with them, a sea change in music production and consumption that threatened the livelihood of recording studios. The world of the digital download, and that really, really changed music a lot. That's Joel Jaffe, a record producer and artist that owns Studio D in Sausalito, California. It hurt uh, major labels a lot. And I mean, now we're down to what, four major labels with some subsidiaries under these labels? Whereas before there was a huge amount of labels out there in the world. And because of the fact that these studios depended on major labels to survive, all of their work disappeared, or a majority of their work. The internet happened, and for all the reasons we're already familiar with, people started to buy less music. Less money spent on music meant less money for the big labels to invest in big recording sessions. Just like the rest of the music industry, the internet placed recording studios in a tough spot. Because people were not buying as much music, say, with CDs, and there was not the influx of money into the record business, budgets started declining pretty rapidly. That's Matt Wallace, a professional producer, mixer, and sound engineer. He's worked with Maroon 5, Faith No More, OAR, and REM. He notes another challenge that arose in the form of music production software, like Pro Tools, Logic, Ableton, and GarageBand, which in a sense democratized the process of music making. You know, people who want to make records can make them in their bedroom. They don't need to go to the studio anymore. You know, in the old days, uh, you know, recording studios had the best gear and they had the best, sensibly the best talent and the best musicians. That's what they had. But now with with with, with programming, you can you know you can have great drum programs and great you know keyboard bass or synthesizer. You can have all this stuff at your fingertips. New methods of digital production meant that more could be done in the box meaning you needed less time in the studio and fewer instruments and musicians. This pushed producers to set up their own small-scale studios. So most of us who might, in the older days, maybe use a big studio for, you know, a month, or and people who had more money would use big studios for two or three months. Nowadays, we go into the big studio maybe for a few days to track our drums, then we go back mm -hmm. to our own little um, project studios. 
and we do all the you know guitars and bass and keyboards and vocals all stuff we do that uh you know in our own project studio so we don't use the big studios as much that new software wasn't being utilized just by professionals it was now available to anyone with a few hundred dollars a computer and a will to make music it birthed the bedroom producer here's joel jaffe again the reality is a lot of these bedroom producers, they don't care that they don't have a live room to work in because everything they use are samples. And these samples were created in really good studios. And Matt Wallace. In the old days, you'd have, say, 10 people who would want to go in that studio and record drums. But now with the advent of, you know, capturing that stuff and having drum, you know, program drums that are recorded in nice rooms, you know, a hundred or a thousand people can use those same exact recordings stick them on their recordings and you don't have to go back to the studio to record those drums anymore. you know they've been professionally mic'd and you know in a big room with a good board and once you do that you don't really need you know you don't need the recording room so much you don't need the producer the engineer or the drummer you know in the old days you have to hire those people every time you wanted that sound nowadays you just push a button and you got them to compound all of this studio threatening change the very makeup of popular music began to shift away from the live, instrumented sounds of the previous decades, the rise of hip-hop and R&B, and their subsequent relocation into the pop realm further marginalized the large recording studio. To record a rap song, you really only need one mic and a small recording booth. The rest can be done in a computer. So you really don't need a large room to accomplish that and also you don't even need musicians so much to accomplish that anymore if you're making music that that's pretty much you know groove oriented if you're just looking for a beat which most you know urban rap stuff is pretty much a beat with some some textual mm -hmm. uh, and melodic things in the background while the rise of hip-hop put extra pressure on the studios in california who were traditionally known for their work on instrument heavy tracks like the guitar ballads of the 70s and early 80s Hip-hop provided a short-term boon for recording studios in New York in the 90s and early 2000s. Around this time, Puffy started to make a name for himself. That's Dave Amlin, owner of MSR Studios in Manhattan. And at his height, I remember he would book all three rooms at Sound on Sound. He could have five rooms at the Hit Factory going. He could have two or three rooms here at Right Track. Um, he was all over town. He would have typically 10 to 12 rooms going a night of wow. just different projects that he was overseeing, whether it was Little Kim or Biggie or any one of the other dozens of artists that he worked with. What were the budgets like? Once hip hop became mainstream, the budgets were insane. Typical album budget, when I started, if you were a big name rock band, if somebody with incredible clout, they might throw half a million dollars toward you to do your work in the studio. You'd have to cover the producer, the engineer, and the studio out of that number. But that was a pretty big number. I mean, you could be in for four to six months and you could basically spend a lot of time trying out ideas, coming up with refinement of parts. The hip hop guys were getting these kind of budgets and then some. I mean, I remember one guy at like $100,000 for one song. But soon, even Diddy's inflated song budgets began to dwindle, and a new production workflow began to emerge, one that didn't even require people to be in the same room, something that Matt Wallace worries may cost music some of its spontaneity. I mean, we look at Florence and the Machine's uh, debut record, uh, the fact that there was someone playing harp in an adjacent studio is why she brought that into her 
song, you know, uh, Dog Days Are Over, you know, which which is a signature sound. I think they were just like, and they're like, oh, yeah, so-and-so's next across the way. Hey, you want to come and play harp on this thing, you know? So that, that kind of thing, we you know, we don't get to have so much anymore. So what's different about the recording and production process now? Uh, just, just a different era. It's a different era, different approach, right. different results. Everything about it is just, you know, you know even, even going back to old bands like, you know, Led Zeppelin or the Beatles or the Who or the Rolling Stones, you know, these are people that pretty much, uh, or Queen, like I, I mix some Queen stuff between Queen and hearing the Led Zeppelin stuff. Those guys, it's live, you know, they're in the room playing live and it's kind of like you're using a, a picture to capture a moment. Using a, a camera to capture a moment in an audio sense, whereas nowadays you're basically building piece by piece. We'll be right back, but first, Musonomics is co-producing a conference here at NYU in New York on Tuesday, January 19th, called Copyright and Technology. Now, in its sixth year, Copyright and Technology is a unique event that brings together people from the media industry technology, and law for panels, presentations, and discussions about copyright in the digital age. I'll be moderating a panel on the future of collective music licensing. We'll talk about new technologies for personal streaming of live events through your smartphone and tablet, and the problems that this is causing for the media companies that broadcast the live events. And we'll have a presentation of original research about the surprising value that data about piracy has to copyright owners who are hoping to learn more about their audiences. Copyright and Technology is produced by Musonomics in partnership with the Copyright Society of the USA, a nonprofit organization devoted to copyright law awareness and education, and Giant Steps Media Technology Strategies. It's a rare opportunity to learn about cutting-edge developments in the digital copyright field and to network with people from a variety of backgrounds in one place. So join me at the Kimmel Center at NYU on Tuesday, January 19th, 2016. For more information and to register, visit copyrightandtech.com conference. Take advantage of early registration discounts through Friday, December 11th. That last point that Matt Wallace made, that songs are now built piece by piece, is an important one. The digital age put pressure on recording studios, just like it did the rest of the industry. This new method of song production has perhaps caused the greatest change in the way recording studios operate. To find out more about the new method of music production, we turn to John Seabrook, a New Yorker writer and author of the new book, The Song Machine which details the rise of this new production method through the lens of a production team that hails from, of all places, Stockholm. But before we get into Scandinavia's role in American pop music, let's break down this new process of producing and recording. John Seabrook, in your view, what have been the drivers of change in the music-making process over the decades? Well, I think technology has been the driver and I think the thing that has changed, the essential thing that has changed, is the way the song is made. So instead of having a melody writer and a lyric writer collaborating with a, a musical instrument, like piano or guitar, and then producer, arranger comes along and the song is turned into a record and recorded then, in this case, it's almost exactly the reverse. The whole process has been turned around so that nowadays, the song begins with a producer 
and it and kind of begins with a recording in a certain way. So it all begins on the computer, mostly with pre-recorded samples and stuff that can be chopped up and moved around by producers who are trying to create, you know, a chord progression and a beat, two main things they're looking for, and then just a basic sort of sonic atmosphere. And they make a bunch of them, and you can make one after another. So the, it goes producer, hook writer, then the lyrics. So the lyrics are basically coming, you know, after the whole sort of melody and production, which is a very big change, I think, in terms of the meaning of the song and, mm. and how the song communicates to the listener. So yeah, it's like, a, it's, it's reversed. For me in the book and, and for the reasons I wanted to write and the reasons I thought it was a book, I thought, wow, that's a big change. And even uh, when we're talking about vocal tracking, even the way that vocals are recorded now is dramatically different than it was not so long ago. So yes, vocals are highly processed. The, the sound that you hear, which sounds so incredibly human and warm, usually, unless they're sort of trying to make it sound space-agey and auto-tuny, but that sound doesn't come naturally and is often uh, the, you know, the result of what's called comping, where you sing just a, a tiny amount of the song over and over again and then move on to another and then the producer looks for the one little best syllable in that take and stitches them all back together and you can do that uh, because you know autotune lets you uh, stay in pitch throughout all the different takes so it's easy to to compare and i think the reason for that is because the tracks are very, they're not warm, like real instruments make you feel kind of warm. And so I think uh, producers compensate by adding vocals that are very warm sounding and very human sounding and very upfront in the whole, the whole mix to compensate, which kind of goes back ultimately to the birth. I, I always feel like that if you're gonna go back and find like one song that started it all, it's Hot Stuff, Donna Summer and uh, Georgia Maroder. And there you had like, you know, a very sort of electronic sounding production, but then you had this amazing vocal and it kind of worked. Uh, I think a lot of these songs, are, they're like children of that, that approach. Children and maybe grandchildren Grandchildren, now. right. So when we think about the great so song machines that have churned out pop music over the last, say, half century, or even longer, if we go back to Tin Pan Alley in New York and we trace the development of pop music through uh, Phil Spector's Los Angeles and, of course, the Brill Building and yep. Nashville and, and London and, and so on. Yeah. It's not obvious that Stockholm occupies a central place on the map. If you sort of follow a geographical kind of path through the music centers. Stockholm is, is outside the, the beaten path for sure. But I think the thing that Stockholm has, and particularly back in the 90s when this stuff got going, was R&B and pop wasn't balkanized in the same way in Scandinavia in general. Uh, you had white people who were completely into R&B and to the point of they just consider themselves writers, yeah, songwriters, they wanted to write R&B, and, and there were no inhibitions about that in terms of race and the legacy of the terms that we in America just kind of grow up with and, and can't escape. 
So what it did, I think, was it allowed them to combine R&B and pop in a way that we weren't able to do. And I think that's what the real musical revolution has been, is this, to create this kind of rhythmic, very sort of dance-driven, that sounds kind of like disco, but it also has these extremely melodic pop hooks. So it isn't really like disco. Uh, and it's this hybrid, it's this rhythmic pop, R&P, you know, it's, it's, and I actually I noted that Sirius XM now calls their second pop station rhythmic pop, mm -hmm. so, and they make a distinction between the two pop stations. Can you trace forward the evolution up through the biggest pop acts of today? Well, the fact that Max Martin himself actually transcends everything from I Want It That Way and Hit Me Baby One More Time, which is quite a long time ago in pop years, which are like kind of like the like dog years or something, to I Can't Feel My Face by the weekend, no one from number one to number one is 1998 to 2015. No one has ever had a span of number ones over that period of time, not Paul McCartney or anybody. So that's totally off the charts. So they were at the top of their game, but then there was a real turn against the Backstreet Boys sound. It was sort of too, you know, I mean, it was, it was a boy band. Mm -hmm. Max Martin went from being kind of, you know, the most sought after songwriter to actually having trouble getting a cut and, and had to kind of reinvent himself. He came to the U.S. He met this guy uh, who lived here in New York, uh, who was the guitar player for the Saturday Night Live band. And, and they met, and that was Dr. Luke. And, they, and so together they created uh, uh, the song Since You've Been Gone for Kelly Clarkson. And I think that is a very seminal pop song. Uh, How so? Since You've Been Gone, because I think it's a very indie rock uh, sounding song. It, it has an edgy feeling to it. Uh, the, the bass is, is very kind of indie rock and well, punk really almost. Uh, the way Luke plays the guitar, it's sort of, in fact he talks about this in the book, he, he intentionally plays the guitar riff in an amateurish sounding way in order to create more of an indie rock kind of feeling. And yet it is a completely great pop song. It just, the, the, the genre mix of indie rock and pure pop was a sort of revolutionary, somehow sort of just mushing together of things. So that was like the rebirth of Max, and then that led through other Kelly hits and Pink hits, but eventually it led to Katy Perry, which was the great sort of apotheosis of the Max-Luke collaboration. But then Max kind of and Luke kind of went a little bit sort of split and Max went on to find his own death metal rocker, a young guy who called himself Shellback, uh, a young Swede, and they then became the songwriters for the Taylor Swift songs. The last eight Taylor Swift hits I think are all co-written by those guys. So it's almost like it's now come full circle and Max is like the, it, a lot of it is like Star Wars by the way, Max is like the, uh, <laughs> the uh, Dennis Pop and, and uh, Shellback is the Max. Of course we'll see what 2016 brings there. What about the role of the studio in all of this? It seems to be relatively unimportant, certainly less important. 
certainly you don't need the big, you know, Goldmark Studios that Phil Spector, you know, recorded and made famous Westlake. You know, those places in New York, a lot of them are actually gone. Yes. Uh, Many of them condo buildings now. Yeah, and they have the name of the the old studios, right? Yeah. That's their marketing. Yes, right. Um, but, you know, uh, most of the stuff does not, it doesn't require certainly a room where you, we can have musicians recording with space, you know, acoustics, and certainly not. Uh, I never saw any, never saw any live recording, really. I, I saw vocals being sung uh, live in recording booths, but in terms, and I saw, you know, sort of things that weren't quite computer keyboards, which were more like, you know, keyboard keyboards being kind of manipulated. But they're more like MIDI controllers. Right, they're like MIDI, so it's, it's somewhere between programming and playing, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but basically, it's just, yeah, you got the computer, you got the screen, you have, the, you have Pro Tools or, or Logic, so you just, and it's, it's all about just manipulating the little rectangles, the little colored, you know, the tracks, and and adding and subtracting and just the sound of the fingers on the keyboard is really, that's the basic sound of the studio. The recording studio faces an uncertain future. In the face of diminishing budgets, low rates, and even lower demand, only the studios that are able to adapt and diversify and provide full service will prosper. In the meantime, programs like Converse Rubber Tracks are providing studio time for musicians who otherwise couldn't afford it. Converse Rubber Tracks own studios in Brooklyn, Sao Paulo, and Boston. They give studio time to emerging artists, not only in their own studios, but by paying for time in other big studios. Just last year, they took over 12 of the most iconic studios in the world, including Abbey Road in London, Tough Gong in Jamaica, and Stanconio Studios in Atlanta, among others. It's an interesting Robin Hood-esque way to both provide studios with valuable business and musicians with a place other than their bedrooms to make music. We'll have more on the impact of brands on music production in an upcoming Musonomics episode. Though the days of many all-powerful, full-service recording studios are over, we see a new equilibrium emerging where bedroom studios, project studios, and high-end, full-service recording studios can exist in harmony. Dave Amlin of MSR put it this way. You could go to any restaurant and get a meal. You go to a diner and get a $5 burger if you can still find them somewhere. Um, or you could go and have a $50 steak. At the end of the day, the meal's the meal, but the experience is very different. And the same goes for recording studios. You can go out to a no-frills place in somebody's home, and if you know what you're doing and you have the discipline to see it through, you're probably gonna come out with a halfway decent product. However, you come here, you're gonna spend more money, but it's gonna get done a lot quicker, and you're probably gonna leave with this unbelievable feeling about the experience, everything that went into it. The way we make our music has changed drastically over the last four decades. We used to record our music live, and now we build it piece by piece. Recording studios used to be an integral part of the song-making process, but now they're kind of optional. Whether or not an artist needs a recording studio, in what type, 
depends on what kind of music is being made, how big or small their budget is, and the vision of the producer. But that's not necessarily all bad. Think back to that Neve recording console that Dave Grohl bought from Sound City in 2011. In the documentary, Grohl and his friends wax lyrical about that console, the new things it allowed them to do, and the particular sound it lends to any recording it's used on. In almost the same breath, those same people lament the advance of the digital age, that it allows things to be done too fast and too easy. There seems to be a disconnect. The Neve itself was once a new piece of technology that threatened to change the way we made our music. In a rush to romanticize the olden days and the things that might have been lost, we're quick to condemn the future. Perhaps the answer for the modern recording studio lies not in guarding itself from new ways of production, but in the simultaneous embrace of technologies new and old. That's all the time we have for this episode. Thanks again to Joel Jaffe, Matt Wallace, Dave Amlin, and John Seabrook for joining us. If you liked the show, please remember to give us a five-star rating on iTunes. It makes a big difference. And if you haven't made it to musonomics.org just yet, get on it and check out the Musonomics blog, where you can see pictures of that iconic Neve console and find links to the music that we played and referenced in this week's episode. The Musonomics Podcast is a production of Musonomics, LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. Special thanks to our partners in the Copyright and Technology Conference, coming up January 19th in New York. For more info, visit copyrightandtech.com slash conference. The Musonomics Podcast is produced at NYU Steinhardt, by Sam Barons and Travis Fodor, with help from Charlotte Leclerc, Alonzo Villagomez, Karina Barroso, Matt Jung, Kiana Ajina, Suroshri Dasgupta, Rosa Yibing, Blair Ador, Yasemin Koserisalu, Judy Choi, Camille Delaney, Julian Duque, and Samantha Tubner. Thanks to Ron Sadoff and Catherine Moore. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening.